welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast series where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Commander Greg Swindon. The Royal Australian Navy's longest serving flagship was the aircraft carrier HMAS Melbourne. She fulfilled that role for most of her 27 years. She had an eventful career which involved two collisions with destroyers. The first, HMAS Voyager in 1964 with the loss of 82 lives and also with the US Frankie Evans in 1969 with the loss of 76 men. These tragedies were covered in detail last year in three enthralling podcast episodes of Australian Naval History, which I highly recommend you listen to. In this, the first of two episodes, we shall discuss the eventful career of HMAS Melbourne and what it was like to serve in her. I'm joined today by, firstly, one of her captains, Rear Admiral Rofse Swan, who joined the Navy in 1940 as a 13-year-old cadet midshipman. He served in the Philippines campaign in World War II, including being the officer of the watch in the cruiser HMAS Shropshire in the Battle of Surigao Strait. He went on to command the frigate Derwent, the destroyer Hobart in the Vietnam War, before commanding Melbourne from 1977 to 1978. I'm also joined by one of her air crew, Commodore Jack McCaffrey, whose flying career was spent mainly in Grumman S2E trackers, flying from HMAS Melbourne and the Naval Air Station at Nowra. Currently, he is a visiting fellow at the University of Wollongong and the University of New South, New South Wales at the Defence Academy. He recently co-authored the book Wings of Gold, the story of Australian pilots and observers who trained with the United States Navy during 1966 to 1968. Finally, I'm joined by one of our engineers, Commander Tom DeVoyle, who was a Marine Engineering Officer in the Navy. His involvement with HMAS Melbourne began with his first posting to sea. Over his career, he was posted to her again, once as a watchkeeping engineering officer, and also later as the Marine Engineer Officer. After his naval career, he spent 10 years at Tenex Shipyard, involved in the construction of the third HMAS Melbourne, as well as the Newcastle and the 10 Anzac class frigates. Gentlemen, welcome. In this, the first episode, we will learn something of the ship and its early career. Firstly, Jack McCaffrey. Post-war, the post-World War II plan was for the RAN to have light fleet aircraft carriers, which were Sydney and then Melbourne. What was the rationale for obtaining these ships? Uh, thanks, Greg. Um, look, uh, I think the rationale emerged really from the experience of World War II, uh, especially in the Pacific where carrier aviation proved invaluable both uh, offensively and defensively at sea. Um, the Navy recognised that carrier aviation would be, become a centrepiece of capable navies in, in the future and set about gaining defence and government support for the RAN to go this way, um, even uh, in the latter stages of the war. Um, I think our initial arguments centred on uh, providing fighter protection for the fleet and also the uh, supported ships, as well as the offensive strike capability that I mentioned. Um, much of the argument uh, was focused on the flexibility of carrier aviation, uh, generated, of course, by the great mobility of the carriers themselves. And, and this was particularly appropriate in the Pacific, uh, with the great distances and, and lack of suitable airfields and infrastructure for uh, land-based air power. Now, um, our first efforts to convince government actually occurred during 1944, uh, and they failed primarily, I think, because uh, Prime Minister Curtin had other things on his mind at the time. He was very much focused on uh, the post-war uh, economic recovery of the country uh, for a start, and secondly, 
Um, he really didn't want to commit to any single individual major defence equipment items for the post-war period without having the benefit of, of a full um, review of the, of the defence requirements uh, going into that period. That said, though, he, he did raise the issue uh, with Churchill uh, when he met with him in, in London in 1944, um, in the vain hope, as it turned out, that uh, the Brits would actually give us um, a carrier and perhaps a couple of cruisers as well. And there had been some uh, hope for that because uh, Britain had gifted the Canadians some ships in, in, along similar lines. Um, so after the war, um, the Navy did manage to convince um, defence uh, and government, with, of course, the, the usual exception of, of the Air Force, which always argued against uh, naval air power. Uh, the Navy did convince government that we should uh, go down the carrier route. And so we gained approval for a two-carrier Navy based on two majestic class light fleet carriers, not large ships by aircraft carrier standards, but um, of the size that we thought we could operate and which would fit within what uh, turned out were going to be fairly constrained uh, defence budgets in the immediate post-war era. And so that led to um, Sydney, the first of those ships commissioned in 1948 uh, as a traditional straight deck carrier, uh, which of course, uh, did have future limits on her, on her um, potential for, for further operations and the second ship uh, in uh, the mid-50s, uh, HMAS Melbourne. Tom DeVoyle. Melbourne was delayed in delivery. Why was that? Well, Melbourne was launched in Barrow and Furnished by Vickers Armstrong in 1944, but she was named HMS Majestic. She, she had a displacement of 18,000 tonnes and a speed of 25 knots. She was a light fleet carrier and basically designed for duty in the Arctic convoys. But World War II ended before she completed and construction ceased. As Jack has just said, uh, eventually approval was obtained uh, to acquire two carriers. One was Sydney. Um, we've got to acknowledge and congratulate the early planners at that time because when Melbourne was commissioned in into the RN in 1955 at 20,000 tonnes. Although not the largest carrier at the time, she was probably the most technologically advanced carrier. For the first time, three essential elements of modern naval aviation were combined in one ship. These were a steam catapult, an angled flight deck, and stabilised landing mirrors. Well, Melbourne was commissioned with Sea Venom fighters in 1955 in the UK and later embarked anti-submarine fairy gannets. As an aside, all the wardroom napkin rings, which were square, not round, had a fairy, avi fairy aviation badge sweated to the inner surface, a very nice touch. So when we took delivery of Melbourne in 1955, she was in fact already 11 years old. So, uh, that's why I guess we can say she wasn't really a very new ship. Jack McCaffrey, from an aviation perspective, what was the significance of these new technologies? They really came about because of uh, the, the more advanced, uh, and, and in particular jet aircraft that were coming through, were invariably heavier and faster than uh, their predecessors and made things much more difficult from the point of view of, of getting on and off uh, the carriers. So. Beginning with the mirror landing system, um, the system itself uh, is located normally uh, more or less amidships on the port side edge of the flight deck. 
and it presents pilots uh, with glide slope information on their final approach, which is fairly brief, a matter of 20, 25 seconds on the straightaway normally. Um, and as viewed by the pilots, um, there are uh, horizontal sets of green lights on either side of the mirror. These are known as the datum lights, and they serve essentially as the horizontal reference point for the glide slope. They're, they're the horizon, if you like. Um, the system then projects a, a small white circular light onto the mirror, um, which is then reflected back to the pilot. This is known as the meatball or the ball to, to the aviators. And the angle at which the, that uh, light is reflected back to the pilot is specific to each type of aircraft. Each aircraft has a different uh, ideal glide slope. So if, if the pilot's on the glide slope, um, he or she will see the ball just directly between and in line with the datum lights. Uh, on the other hand, if the pilot's high, uh, the ball will appear high, and if the pilot's low, the ball will appear low. And that then enables the pilot quickly to assess uh, his or her situation and make the appropriate um, power and attitude corrections to hopefully arrive at the deck amongst the arrest wires. Now, um, while working on the glide slope, of course, the pilot must also remain lined up on the extended center line uh, and re remain on speed as well. Um, the speed appropriate to the aircraft and its particular uh, type of approach. Now, and the mirror landing system, as I said, really came into its own as faster jet aircraft, made it increasingly hard for the uh, landing signal officers to respond uh, to aircraft maneuvers on final approach and provide timely correction signals um, to pilots. Um, and with the steam catapult, uh, uh, which Tom has uh, alluded to initially, um, again, it was the, the advent of heavier and faster aircraft that meant free deck launches, even using the full length of the flight deck, were no longer feasible. The aircraft simply wouldn't get enough airspeed to get airborne. And that led to the development of, of catapult systems um, and ultimately to the still used uh, steam catapult. And the main advantage of the, the steam one over the hydraulic catapult that Tom mentioned is it gives uh, a relatively even and const constant acceleration to the aircraft during the stroke, whereas the hydraulic one tended to give a real punch at the beginning um, and not so much for the rest of the stroke. And, and the steam catapults have been developed to the extent that they, they've been able to launch uh, any aircraft that's been uh, developed for carrier use. Uh, they're now being superseded to some extent, um, although not without troubles, uh, in the USN by an electromagnetic system. And it's worth noting just by way of comparison that um, Melbourne's catapult stroke had a, a length of about 30 metres, while those of the, the big supercarriers in the US now have a stroke of about 76 metres. Also worth mentioning, uh, and it was a real limitation for, for Melbourne, that she only had one catapult, uh, without which, of course, aircraft could not be launched. And all the, the, the major American carriers now have four, and the redundancy is important, not uh, as well as, of course, the, the ability to, to launch more aircraft in, in a shorter period of time. Uh, and finally, the angle flight deck. Um, before the, the angle flight deck appeared, um, aircraft took off and landed on uh, on the same alignment, that is on, on the center line of the straight flight deck. And so for, for landings, um, a barrier was always rigged across the flight deck, again, more or less amidships. And so uh, aircraft that had already landed or were awaiting movement either down to the hangar or aft for a, another takeoff uh, were placed forward of that barrier, which was intended to stop any landing aircraft that missed the arrestor wires. Um, the erection of the barrier also meant, of course, that, that any aircraft that missed the wires could not go around again and attempt another landing. 
There was also um, real potential for, for aircraft to be damaged when they engaged the barrier. So yet again, it was this development of heavier and faster aircraft that demanded change. Um, they demanded longer pull out of the arrest wise on landing, which meant uh, that those barriers would have to be placed further and further forward, uh, thus reducing the space available for aircraft parking. And also, of course, um, increasing the force with which those aircraft would engage the barriers. So by changing the alignment of the landing area and so about 10 degrees to port off the center line, the barrier became unnecessary. Uh, when an aircraft missed the wires, it could conduct a bolter, that is to get airborne again and go around for another landing. That change alignment also meant that aircraft parked up forward on the starboard side of the deck were no longer in danger of being hit by aircraft uh, in the circuit, either landing or taking off. So yeah, all very necessary um, in, in, um, developments for naval aviation. Thanks, Jack. Rear Admiral Swan. Once Melbourne joined the fleet in 1956 as flagship, a pattern was established whereby she would undertake an annual deployment to Asia as part of the Strategic Reserve and the Southeast Asian Treaty Organisation. You were at one time on the CETO, as it became known, staff in Bangkok. Can you explain what the Southeast Asian Treaty Organisation was and what sort of exercises Melbourne was involved in? Yes, um, the Southeast Asia Treaty Organisation was an international organisation for the collective defence in Southeast Asia. And it was created under the Manila Pact in 1954. It was the initiative of the President of the United States at the time, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, and his Secretary of State, John Dulles. Its primary purpose at that time was to block further communist gains in Southeast Asia. There were eight member nations, namely Australia, New Zealand, Pakistan, the Philippines, Thailand, France, United Kingdom, and the United States. You might note that there, there were only two Southeast Asian nations mentioned, and these shared close ties with the United States. Um, CETO headquarters was in Bangkok. It was headed by a Secretary General, the first of which was Pope Saracen, who was a Thai diplomat and an ex Prime Minister of Thailand. It was a planning organisation that, unlike NATO, it had no commands and no standing forces. And while there were military planners, um, there were also committees on economics, security and information, trying to help Thailand and other nations uh, uh, with, with uh, to defeat communism. Um, there was a major general in command in charge of the military planners, um, or a major general equivalent, um, and the naval planners uh, had a colonel equivalent as their military planner. Our planner was a captain in the Navy, and I was his staff officer uh, at the time. Uh, uh, while a lot of military planning took place and there were uh, training exercises, no forces were ever deployed. Naval exercises were held annually in the waters uh, between the Philippines and Southeast Asian coast uh, in the area of vital trade routes uh, 
where there were very busy shipping lanes. Now, of course, that's referred to as the South China Sea. However, these uh, exercises were conducted under the auspices of ANSYS, which had its headquarters in Singapore. And it was in those exercises that Melbourne took part. Um, there were naval units from Australia, New Zealand, the United Kingdom and America, which took part in those exercises. But CETO uh, was not involved. Uh, I can recall, we did have observers, and I can recall spending time in an American aircraft carrier observing what was going on. In my time as a staff officer between 1960 and 1963, considerable emphasis was placed on preparing Thailand to defend itself against communist uh, aggression. Um, I can remember spending a considerable amount of time uh, uh, reconnoitring canals leading out of Bangkok to see how navigable they were by boats and so on. I also, uh, as a sideline, became a bit of an expert um, in the wording of pamphlets which were being developed to drop from the air in the event of hostilities, all part of psychological warfare. Um, it was an interesting three years for me. Um, eventually, of course, CETA was dissolved in 1977, um, uh, most of the members having lost interest and or withdrawn from it. Thank you, Admiral Swan. Tom DeVoyle, can you describe Melbourne's engineering plant and what was the organisation involved in keeping that running? Uh, Melbourne's engineering plant was fairly conventional, but it had a few unique features. When she was built, she was powered by steam turbines, driven driving two shafts, delivering 40,000 shaft horsepower. She had four boilers. She was a direct current uh, electrical ship. She had three 500 kilowatt generators, turbo generators, and two 400 kilowatt diesel generators. While most steamships have separate boiler and engine rooms, in Melbourne, there were only two main machinery compartments, a forward machinery space containing two boilers, a set of turbines driving the starboard shaft, a turbo generator, distilling plant, and associated auxiliary machinery. And similarly, there was an after machinery space for the port shaft. Now, the starboard propeller had four blades, and the port, port propeller had three blades. I've seen various elaborate theories for this, but there was a mundane reason for it, really. It was to prevent resonant vibration frequencies occurring in the shafting at operating speeds. All the machinery was wartime or pre-war design. The boilers were standard Admiralty three-gram boilers with Malesco superheaters. The forward machinery space also provided steam for the catapult during flying operations. The flying stations, boiler pressure was increased from 400 to 430 pounds per square inch, only 15 psi below the safety valve settings. With the catapult randomly gulping lots of steam, this really tested the metal of the petty officer's steam of the boilers. I knew this because as a young officer, I got my boiler ticket steaming these boilers. The marine engineering officer and the weapons electrical officer had the normal responsibilities that existed in any ship, except that the MEO, 
and which late in life uh, was me, uh, was responsible for maintenance and operation of the catapult and arresting gear, as well as the provision of bulk aviation fuel. In the latter life of the uh, uh, ship, uh, we carried 480 imperial tons of AVCAT, that's about 133,000 gallons, and 220 tons of AVGAS, that's about 70,000 gallons. Melbourne could also provide uh, diesel and furnish fuel oil to other ships at sea. Now, the engineering department had a complement of close to 270. This included a senior engineer who was a lieutenant commander and about 12 lieutenants. Each lieutenant had a part of ship, for example, main engines and boilers, fuel systems, hotel services, refrigeration and air conditioning and so on. And they also kept watches at sea as engineer off of the watch. Quite often there would be an uh, and under training officer. These officers, they reported to the senior engineer. However, the engineer responsible for the catapult and the engineer running the arresting gear reported directly to me, as did the shipwright officer. Most people don't realise it, but when you see videos or newsreels of flight deck operations, the kids in bright vests scuttling under the aircraft on uh, on the catapult, connecting and up, ready for launch. They were my kids, and I was really proud of the way they performed. <laughs> the engineer's office was actually HQ2, that is, Secondary Damage Control Headquarters. It was a compartment of about 18 by 16 feet, with bulkheads lined with state boards and sandpad fans for managing things like damage control, flooding, counter-flooding, fuel management, machinery systems, and also to the command. It was traditional at sea, after dinner, off-watch engineer officers would gather there to discuss a day's happening, tomorrow's activities, maintenance, etc. And Commander E would sit at his desk in a small alcove on the port bulkhead. When I first went to sea in 1963, even though it was a crowded and lively space, one almost needed an appointment to speak to Commander E. He was God. But that's the way it was in the 60s. Little did I expect that some years later I would come back as God. So basically that was how we organised and we had, certainly in the early days before the ship was modernised, fairly basic machinery to handle, uh, to, to manage and operate the ship with. Thank you, Tom DeVoyle. Jack McCaffrey. The heart of an aircraft carrier is her air group. Can you describe that organisation and the initial aircraft Melbourne embarked? As for the, the carrier air group, yes, it is probably the heart of, um, of the, uh, the, the ship as far as aviation is concerned. But I'd also like to, to make some mention of the other aspect of, of the, um, the aviation uh, function on the carrier, and that is the air department, which supported the air group. Now, in, in Melbourne's case, uh, during my time, which was late 60s to early 80s, uh, the air group, which was commonly called the CAG for carrier air group, was a simple organisation uh, comprising um, th three, three squadrons and a small staff led by the carrier air group commander, who was also commonly known as the CAG. Um, the support staff he had was very small with a, a direction officer and torpedo and anti-submarine officer who lay liaised with 
uh, ship's operations teams, respectively, for air defence and anti-submarine warfare. They also provided um, expert specialist advice to the squadrons in their own particular fields. Um, the air group uh, also had its own landing safety officer, uh, and the CAG himself, the commander, was the voice for the squadrons in matters relating to flying op operations uh, with the ship's command team. Uh, in earlier times, the organisation actually had been far larger and it included a gunnery officer, uh, an operations officer, and a number of uh, sailors from uh, both medical and supply branches brought from Nowra uh, to complement uh, the ship's staff with uh, the addition of the squadrons on board. Um, by the late 1970s, the, the K commander position itself uh, had been disestablished and the duties uh, were taken over or assumed by the senior of the embarked squadron commanding officers. Now, in, again, in, in my time, uh, there were three squadrons that embarked, um, 816, my own squadron, um, fixed-wing anti-submarine. Um, normally, we embarked six trackers. Uh, each of those had a four-man crew. The squadron had its own landing safety officers as well, who also flew. Um, and it was led by a commanding officer, senior pilot, and senior observer. Um, 817 was the rotary wing anti-submarine squadron, and that embarked uh, in earlier times with eight Wessex, uh, and after about 1976, uh, six seeking helicopters for anti-submarine work. Uh, these aircraft also had four-man crews, and so we had the same command structure as for 816. And the third squadron uh, was 805, the fixed-wing fighter and ground attack squadron, which embarked anywhere from four up to nine um, A4 Skyhawks. Uh, the Skyhawk was a single engine and single seat uh, aircraft, and thus uh, the aircrew complement of 805 was much smaller than that of the other squadrons, and it was led simply by commanding officer and senior pilot. Uh, worth noting too that um, in the previous generation of aircraft, the Gannets and Sea Venoms, um, there were actually four um, frontline squadrons, 816 and 817 were both Gannet squadrons, 805 and 808 were both Sea Venom squadrons. Now, each of the squadrons um, had its own maintenance teams uh, from the airframes and engines trades, uh, electrical and electronics, weapons and safety equipment. And these teams of anywhere from 60 to 80 men uh, usually worked in three watches on board the ship um, and aircraft maintenance was therefore a 24-hour per day activity. The squadrons also had their own air engineering and air electrical officers who led the maintenance effort and, of course, managing uh, their own teams. And the air group is probably um, worth saying that the air group only embarked in Melbourne for workups and for deployments. And otherwise, uh, we were based at and operated from the Naval Air Station at Nowra. Now, I'd just like to mention uh, the, the Air Department, which of course was a permanent part of Melbourne's ship's company, uh, led by Commander Air and comprising perhaps up to about 300 men. Um, it provided much of the supporting infrastructure for the embarked air group. And the main components were, first of all, uh, on the flight deck, led by the flight deck officer, who was responsible for all aircraft activity on the flight deck and in the hangar uh, through the hangar control officer. The flight deck officer or his assistant launched every fixed wing aircraft. And the teams of aircraft handlers who managed the positioning and marshalling of aircraft on the flight deck and in the hangar were led by um, aircraft control room officer and hangar control officers. Uh, we find too that the mirror control officer was also an integral part of the flight deck team. And as I've mentioned earlier, he was responsible for ensuring that the mirror landing site was set correctly for each type of aircraft for every landing. Um, we had an air operations group led by the uh, air ops officer. He managed the daily flying program 
and had the task of balancing the requirements of the squadrons with those of the ship's other needs. Uh, and quite often um, that was something that required some fairly delicate manoeuvring. Um, air traffic control was managed by a small team of controllers uh, who provided traffic separation and uh, precision instrument approach assistance in poor weather. Traffic in the landing circuit was managed by Lieutenant Commander Flying uh, from the FlyCo position, often assisted there by Commander Air. Aviation and uh, other weather forecasting as well as oceanographic forecasting was provided by a small team of meteorologists who joined the ship, you know, usually from Nasnara. Now, as for Melbourne's initial complement of aircraft, um, they were um, British built and the last of our fixed wing uh, British built aircraft and both types were in service with the Royal Navy at the time that we introduced them. The Ferry Gannett um, was a twin turboprop anti-submarine warfare aircraft um, with contra-rotating propellers, crew of three, each of whom was in a separate uh, cockpit. The Gannett relied on radar and visual mainly for its searches. Uh, it carried some early passive directional sonar boys, but they were used purely for localization of submarine detections, not for initial uh, detections. The Gannett endurance uh, ranged uh, from two up to three hours. Uh, it didn't have a searchlight, but it did carry rocket propelled flares uh, for night illumination. And from what I hear, that was, that was a quite exciting um, process uh, getting those things set up. Weapons uh, for the Gannett included torpedoes, depth charges and air-to-ground rockets. Um, the de Havilland Sea Venom was a single uh, engine jet aircraft and a two-seater, uh, that's pilot and observer. It was fitted with a very capable air intercept radar and, and, and I think it was the only one of its kind in Australian military service at the time. Carried four 20 millimeter cannon, uh, could also carry a small bomb load or air-to-ground rockets under the wings if used for ground support. Um, both types of aircraft served until 1967 when they were replaced by the Grumman S2E Tracker and Douglas A4 Skyhawk, uh, respectively. Uh, probably also worth mentioning that um, before the advent of the Wessex in the early 1960s, um, the ship did embark one or two Sycamore helicopters to act as search and rescue aircraft. Thanks, Jack. Rear Admiral Swan, the other function of Melbourne was to act as flagship. Can you explain how that aspect of the ship worked? and what your relationship as the commanding officer was with the Admiral. Yes, I'll try and explain it for you. Um, back in the 70s, uh, the, our Navy operated as a fleet, or in today's parlance, a task group, with Melbourne uh, escorted by a number of destroyers and the whole fleet being supported by a fleet tanker or oiler. Um, the Admiral in charge of the fleet in those days spent most of his time at sea. It was only when Melbourne was in Sydney for maintenance or a leave period for the ship's company that the Admiral went ashore to his headquarters on Garden Island. Melbourne was fitted with an Admiral's bridge, one deck immediately below the ship's bridge or compass platform from which the captain of the ship operated. However, the fleet navigator was also the ship's navigator and so operated from the ship's bridge. I served on the Admiral's staff in the late 50s and witnessed many discussions between the Admiral and the ship's captain and navigator, mainly on tactical issues 
uh, immediately affecting the formation of the fleet. Um, often the discussions I witnessed were not very amicable. However, before I took command of Melbourne, I'd been the Admiral's Chief of Staff at Fleet Headquarters for 12 months, during which time the Admiral was mostly at sea. He spent most of his time at sea. It was a very demanding 12 months in which in his absence, his headquarters was moved from Garden Island to Potts Point. While we had worked together for some time, I was nevertheless a little apprehensive about taking command of the ship with him on board in charge of the fleet and myself in command of Melbourne. The Admiral, of course, was in charge of the tactics and uh, objectives, and Melbourne, just like any other ship, had to carry out his directives. The fleet was his, his to command, manoeuvre, and direct on a minute-to-minute timescale, basically. Rather naturally, he consulted me from time to time on tactics and objectives, but I don't recall any problems uh, during my time. As captain, of course, one has to realise that I had a full-time job on my hands, namely to keep the 1,200 men on board motivated so that aircraft were available 24 hours a day to meet the Admiral's objectives. So I hope that gives some idea of how an Admiral uh, works on board with the ship, uh, uh, the captain and the Admiral having two different jobs to do. Thank you, Admiral Swan. Tom DeVoyle, an aircraft carrier's life is longer than that of her aircraft. So one of the challenges, particularly for a ship of Melbourne's size, was to be able to accommodate the next generation of aircraft. Can you discuss Melbourne's experience? Well, Greg, uh, as you say, uh, um, it was necessary for the ship to have the capabilities to operate fixed wing, and uh, these depended on the catapult and the arresting gear. In 1955, when we took delivery, of course, we had sea venoms and the uh, gannets, as Jack has uh, described. She could handle them and hanger them. Uh, okay, but they become obsolete in due course, and eventually uh, she had to handle the later generation of aircraft, Skyhawks and uh, trackers. These aircraft really stretched her capabilities to the maximum, since there was a limit to the stroke of the catapult and the length of the deck available for landing. In 1968, a modernisation, a major modernisation, was carried out in Garden Island. The catapult was overhauled but not lengthened. It was still just under 100 feet. The arresting gear was overhauled and made capable of accepting the new aircraft, in particular the Skyhawks and their increased kinetic energy on landing. A jet blast deflector was installed for the new uh, generation of jet uh, fighters. We had avgas storages installed for the trackers, liquid oxygen plants for the Skyhawk. And of course, all the radars, communications, electronics uh, were upgraded and uh, modernised as well. We also had installed an internal TV system throughout the ship. Additional distilling plant was uh, installed, although we still 
had to restrict people to 90-second showers. In this case, the internal TV was invaluable for getting the message across, and we had a fairly explicit video uh, showing how it was done. Now, of course, uh, all the basic machinery was left as it was, and the updates were there to accommodate the new aircraft. So with a top speed of only 22 or 23 knots, launching the wind with the new aircraft was a bit of a challenge and was usually almost an undocumented full power run each time. <clears throat> but see, as the uh, MEO, my favorite time was to sit at night on the uh, flight deck with my catapult officer when we were launching trackers. We used to sit by the hadar. We were literally under the wing, and as the engines were brought up to power for launch, they, they spewed red, orange, blue flame, and all sorts of red-hot carbon from the exhausts of the big radial engine. It was a sight to behold. The howdah was a small section of the flight deck that was raised for launching so that the petty officer operating the catapult could watch the activities on the flight deck. It might surprise many that even at that stage in the ship's life, there was never a handbook for the catapult, only a notebook prepared by a previous catapult engineer officer. I'm sure some of the air crew would have been, would have shuddered had they known this. Reliability really did not improve after the modernization, and it was frequently a battle of ingenuity over old age to keep things going. It was, I recall, 103 vertical steps from the control platform of the forward machinery space to the bridge. When I would start out, start out on the journey to report main engines to the captain, I sometimes wondered if the machinery state I left was still the same when I arrived at the bridge. But that was life. We survived. It certainly sounds like uh, the engineers, the stokers on board, were a pretty tough lot with the, uh, the engineering systems they had to operate, but also in the, uh, the very, very hot conditions. Uh, what was that like for them, or for them and also for you in command of them? Well... I was going to make a comment on this uh, at the uh, uh, conclusion, uh, but uh, it was a very difficult uh, posting for most most of the technical sailors uh, to come to Melbourne because of these conditions. Uh, as I said, living conditions were not good, and I suspect by today's standards they wouldn't be acceptable. Uh, working conditions were probably, um, I guess I would say, of all the ships I've served in, they were probably the hardest. And uh, I suppose it's a reflection of the ship having been built basically for use in the Arctic convoys and we used her in the tropics. But uh, it was remarkable how well people did adapt and uh, uh, form themselves into good working teams and working relationships with everyone. Jack McCaffrey, as we mentioned, you flew trackers. Can you describe how Melbourne would operate with the next generation of aircraft and what sort of capability did she represent? Uh, sure, Greg. Um, the, the tracker and the Skyhawk, um, 
and later the Sea King helicopter represented not so much new capabilities for us, uh, but really big advances over the capabilities of the predecessor aircraft, respectively Gannett, Sea Venom and, and Wessex. So the, the Tracker was a twin piston engine, four crew anti-submarine warfare aircraft with a, a normal endurance of about six hours, comfortably six hours. Um, it had a comprehensive set of sensors, uh, including radar, uh, magnetic anomaly detector, um, which picked up disturbances, uh, magnetic dis disturbances in, in the Earth's crust, which we hoped uh, would turn out to be submarines. Um, electronic support measures, which enabled us to uh, pick up uh, radar transmissions from um, surface ships or submarines and give a bearing to uh, uh, the source of, of those transmissions. We had a powerful searchlight for night illumination and probably most importantly we had um, and especially in the S2G version of the tracker we had an excellent uh, active and passive sonic system uh, for submarine detection. Uh, the tracker could carry two torpedoes in the torpedo bay, uh, could also carry torpedoes uh, on the wing stations and it could carry depth charges or air-to-surface rockets on the wing stations as well. We also carried uh, 32 sonar boys. Uh, they were the, the key to our um, anti-submarine search and localization efforts. Uh, Skyhawk was single engine, single seat jet fighter and attack aircraft with excellent range and endurance uh, and a substantial weapon load. It had an air intercept radar, um, was fitted with two 20 mil cannon and could carry actually up to about 8,000 pounds of bombs or missiles in, in the five underwing and centerline racks uh, that were fitted. It was also capable of being refuelled in the air, which again I think was a first for any military, uh, Australian military aircraft at the time anyway. Uh, the Wessex and the Sea King were both uh, four place or four crew anti-submarine warfare helicopters, uh, the later Sea King uh, also being twin engined. Both were fitted with dipping active sonar and both could carry torpedoes. The Sea King itself uh, was also fitted with a, a quite capable search radar. Um, 816 normally embarked with six trackers, while 805 normally embarked with four and then later eight Skyhawks. 817 embarked with eight Wessex and later on uh, with six Seekings and two Wessex for search and rescue. Now, Tracker allowed Melbourne to provide an anti-submarine screen at a considerable distance from the ship and the protected force, uh, up to about 100 miles. And, and in, in this, we were, we were supplementing uh, any more distant land-based maritime patrol effort, which usually uh, occurred uh, further out from the ship and was in turn supported by the close-in work uh, of the anti-submarine helicopters. Um, by carrying uh, our 32 sonar boys, that enabled us to um, put in place passive barriers, that is sonar boy barriers listening for the noise made by submarines. And we laid these across expected threat lines. And we also carried uh, active boys, a smaller number of active boys, which would enable us to localise then any detections made uh, from the passive barriers. As the 1970s progressed, um, that initial emphasis on anti-submarine warfare did lessen uh, to a fair extent, um, and surface surveillance and strike direction became more frequent tasks for us in conjunction with the Skyhawks uh, from 805. And for these missions, uh, the tracker conducted surface surveillance, sometimes up to 300 miles from the carrier um, and subsequent shadowing of target ships. And um, if there was to be a strike, then this was followed usually around first light in the morning um, by the Skyhawks coming out. And we provided them with coded directions to, um, to an initial point uh, from the carrier 
uh, and we, we would normally be orbiting that uh, initial point and we would then give them further um, range of bearing instructions to the target ship from that point. Uh, in addition to their strike role, the Skyhawks also provided air defence for the carrier and again from, for supported ships. Uh, and in this role, the aircraft carried sidewinder air-to-air -air missiles and generally operated under direct control of the carrier itself or some other nominated air warfare controlling ship. Uh, the Wessex and Sea Kings uh, provided close-in ASW protection for the carrier, and this was generally conducted within about 50 miles of the force with the helicopters generally operating in pairs known as a dip gang. And they coordinated their sonar searches to provide maximum discomfort for any threatening submarines. Uh, within the limits of the number of aircraft embarked, uh, this air group was, I think, a very capable unit and proved to be so in the major exercises in which we took part. Um, I think we would have backed ourselves uh, against any surface force that didn't have airborne early warning. And at the time, that was virtually all of them. Um, I wouldn't uh, necessarily uh, make such a confident claim in respect to uh, submarine threats, um, but we still provided a very capable ASW effort for the carrier and any protected units. At this point, with Melbourne at its operational peak, we will leave the story of the flagship HMAS Melbourne. In the next episode, we will learn of the greatest peacetime contribution and her final years. Many thanks to Rear Admiral Rothsay Swan, Commodore Jack McCaffrey and Commander Tom DeVoyle. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us. And if you like this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so that other people can learn of the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.